was recently on the Building Openness podcast with Julia Che. Julia is a building a startup to solve open source funding and build open source communities. This is her first time doing a podcast interview, so there is a little bit of awkwardness here, but I thought it went off relatively well. We talked a little bit about learning in public, being a GitHub star, and building developer community. So here it is. Swix, I'm so excited to chat with you today. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this inaugural interview of uh, this podcast. You're my, literally my very first guest ever on the show, so I couldn't be more delighted, honestly. So you have a pretty strong following of dev community on Twitter, and so they know who you are. But for others who might not have come across you before, can you share an overview about yourself, who Sean Swix Wang is, and what you're currently up to? Sure. And thanks for having me. It's, it's an honor to be uh, considered and I'm happy to help launch your podcast, which is pretty exciting. I'm Sean. I work at Temporal as a head of developer experience. And I'm originally from Singapore, mostly work in New York. Previous career in finance, where I did everything from currency derivatives to trading GameStop and shorting it <laughs> and actually making money. But I, I transitioned to finance, transitioned to tech at age 30, and then essentially did a boot camp. And, and since then, I've been I've worked at Netlify, AWS, and now at Temporal. On the side, I do quite a bit of community work. So I used to be the moderator of r-react.js, which is the subreddit for React developers, the largest JavaScript framework. And that that grew from like something like 40,000 when I joined to over 200,000 now. I recently left that to run my own paid community, which uh, I, I run for my book. And that's available at learningpublic.org, as well as a, another framework community, just because I like it. But this time starting from zero, uh, I, I literally started it um, to, I think we just hit like 9,000 or something like that. And we're going to launch our third conference this month. So yeah, I like community stuff. I like blogging. Happy to talk about any of that. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, you're a very active member in the open source community. You're even a GitHub star. So I'd love to know what that means and furthermore, what open source means to you. Honestly, it's just beta test slash super user program. Just like a lot of companies have like some kind of recognition for people who are maybe prominent users. Also, they give you some swag. So this microphone that I'm using is, is from GitHub. And uh, yeah, they give you advanced look at some of their upcoming features and they can ask you for feedback. So it's a little bit of a status and recognition in, in exchange for some work. But every one of us love GitHub, GitHub so much that uh, we don't mind. Cool. And so what do you find appealing about open source and what makes you want to participate? I think open source is one of the things that make makes tech so different from every other industry, particularly I came from finance. Sorry, let me turn off my Discord because it's going to do that every, every few minutes. Open source makes sets sets tech apart from every other industry because we share so much. So there are, two, there are a few benefits coming out of that. One is that we have to duplicate work a lot less. Like we can just stand on the shoulders of giants a lot faster and, and, and build faster in theory. <laughs> the practice is that it's very messy, but in theory, if you find the right things that you can reuse, that you can use them forever and it's totally free and you can inspect the source, you can change it. It's a really wonderful thing. The second thing is that you actually get a lot of scrutiny over you know the highly used open source. And I think some of the, I, I don't know who said this, but you know, sunlight is the best disinfectant. Whenever people write software, there's bound to be bugs, there's especially security holes, and when and more people looking at it, the better. So that's a very strong reason to open source. But me personally coming into the industry, I think the 
the personal reason is that it's a great way to learn because the, the code is the source of truth and you can literally just open up the code and read what, what goes on under the hood. Not a lot of people do it. But every time I do it, I find I learn something new and it really is a reliable way to level up very quickly. So I think I owe a lot of that to open source. Like when I was in finance, a lot of the way that we used to learn was like you go to college, you learn in some textbook and then you pass some CFA exam and then you try to work on your investment thesis or your pricing model and that's proprietary and you do not share that with any other banks or, or hedge funds. And I realized that's fine, but it's very zero sum way to, to look at things like if I win only if you lose. Whereas in tech, it's a fundamentally more positive sum where I can give away my what I, my secrets or the things I, the thing I spent millions to work on. And not only do I not lose, I might actually win from like getting more reputation or getting contributions from the external community or even increasing my reputation as a an employer. So people want to come work with us based on the, the work that we that we do internally. This is an example actually of something that happened recently, Figma is a you know it's a very popular design tool. Their CTO, Evan Wallace, actually started working on a build tool in, in his free time called ES Build. And it's just such a high quality tool that actually it definitely increased my own perception of what it's like to work at Figma because if the CTO does this for fun, imagine what it's like working with him on, on a real thing at, at work. So it's def- there's definitely a marketing angle to it. And so that is that indicative of a shift that's happening within open source and what are your thoughts on the present state, what that shift is, and what the future possibly is of open source? That's such a huge question. <laughs> you cannot possibly have a good answer to that. Um, sure, open source used to be a more stick it to the man type of thing. Very famously, Unix was a very closed source licensed operating system, and Linux was started just to clone it because they didn't want to pay for Unix. Uh, and I think that really, that culture definitely persists in some way today, but now, there's a lot of corporatization of open source. Like I, open source is my business model and you try to create some funding around it. And that's, by the way, that's what the company I work at does. We, we have an open source framework and then we're trying to monetize that by doing a cloud hosted offering. But that's in no way any different from Elasticsearch or MongoDB or name any other open source company. Yeah, and then and now that it's so established, I think that a lot of people also try to revere by open source, which is not a thing that used to happen. So, which I think is a positive because a lot of people would be screened out by the traditional hiring processes. Like you have to go to a, a recognizable university or you have to write, pass the right interviews. No, but what if they actually wrote software that you already use? Like, yeah, you should hire them. So, so yeah, I think it's a positive. I like it. Cool, cool. So based on your experience, what are two or three of the biggest pain points you face as a developer in open source? Oh, that's interesting. Based on experience, what are the two or three of the biggest pain points I face as, as a developer in open source? The first one is definitely that documentation, internal documentation is pretty lacking. So when I try to want to contribute, there's not really a map. You just have to figure your way out around. There's a movement towards documenting the architecture and the design principles. So there's a blog post or movement called architecture.md where they want you to write uh, your, your sort of overall organizing principles for contributors. But I only see two or three people actually do that. The vast majority just, you know, have their code out there and they just assume that you throw it in the deep end and you just figure it out. So so the learning curve is just pretty hard. And then I think that the other thing is just making it worthwhile because a lot of the times 
I look at a lot of open source projects out there. I'm very, I admire them, but they're never going to pay me anything. So I, it's literally just doing stuff for fun. And I can think of, you know, a couple other things that I can do for fun that would pay stuff. So I would, I'm more inclined to go do that. So that's definitely me as an indie hacker type mentality, uh, where I definitely am more focused towards trying to, trying to do interesting things and get paid for it as compared to someone who just does things purely for intellectual fulfillment. And that's fine too. That's like, if I never had to worry about money ever again, I would do that because I just, I love ideas and I love like, Hey, this thing should work. How come no one's done it? And then I just go do it. And then it, and, and then it you know, blows everyone's minds. That, that, that seems like a wonderful uh, way to spend time. Uh, unfortunately, I, I'm still very much in trying to pay my loans <laughs> mode. So, so I'm not there yet, but uh, I would like to be someday. So I think funding, yeah, funding is my. So what are your thoughts about these two sort of monetizing models? One would be the GitHub sponsors or Patreon. And then two is that hacker one bug hunting bounty source type of program. Well, HackerOne is, is successful, so uh, great, great for them, particularly how they keep people anonymous, which is very important to hacker culture, but that's only focused on security, right? So, and a lot of the times it's very scoped when you set up a bug bounty program and the real surface area of, of your attacks, sorry, the real attack surface area of your company is completely unscoped. Like people can pull you in a thousand different ways. Th then talking about GitHub sponsors, I don't like it. I don't, I don't think it's right. I think it's begging. And a lot of times it's developers paying out of their own pockets to the open source developers when it really should be the companies that employ them. Why should the, you know, why should developers pay, be paying out of their own pockets after tax as well, which is absurd. So yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a, well, it's a nice move. I, I'm not going to hate on that. I think GitHub at least doing something is better than not doing anything. And they also match donations for the first year, but I'm not sure it solves anything. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for your thoughts on that. And so with regards to learning in public, you've written extensively about learning in public. Can you share your thoughts uh, for our listeners on what it means to learn in public and why this has become such a significant part of your process and your work? Yeah. So learning in public is this idea that the vast majority of our lives, we've been conditioned to learn in private, all the way from a formal education, even to the way that we learn at work. It's very much like go through courses, try to skill up to yourself and then execute that. There's no recognition of the value of putting stuff out there. And when I look back at my own career, the, the most positive high return on investment things that I did were things where I learned in public. So literally writing up, you know, notes on whatever I just learned or writing notes to myself from three to six months ago. And it's not this idea that you should broadcast every single waking moment of your life. We're not talking about becoming the Kardashians, but the default is 0% public. And I think that people and developers in particular are not at all well served by having things zero by default. So I most mostly just encouraging people to go from zero to five or 10% public. So vast majority of the time you're still learning in private. And what happens when you're learning in public? Quite a few things, which is very similar and tied into open source, which is, for example, you put your, when you write your stuff up, when you write up your knowledge or, or rehash it in a certain way and put it in your own words, you retain more, right? And that's a value, it's a valuable thing in and of itself. Even if you, if no one else read it, you still win. And then I really like, I'm really a fan of single player games. The second thing is if other people read it, they're very incentivized to spot mistakes because that's how the internet works. When someone on the internet is wrong, 
you're just, you're just falling over broken glass to go fix it. And lastly, I think it really helps for people who are working on the thing. So let's say I used to do a lot of writing on React and now I wrote about the React library. You can bet the core team of React developers are reading it because they want to know how what the external perception is. And if they if I get it right, then I'm helping to amplify their voice because I have something that they don't have, which is a beginner's mind. They've, they've lost the ability to relate or understand what it's like to come into something fresh. So you can provide a lot of value for, for other people, but mostly I pitch learning in public as a selfish thing. Don't do it out of the goodness of your heart. Do it because you genuinely believe this is the best way to learn. Do it because you learn faster this way and you grow your brand, your uh, network, your skills all at the same time. And when you survey the menu of other possible things you could be doing in order to learn and grow your professional skills, this is by far the clearest and most effective way to do that. And you can do it sustainably for a very long period of time. I love that. I really do. I would love to do it more myself. Well, you are with the podcast. Yeah. My first podcast interview. Yeah. So, you know, what to share and what not to share. I saw in one of your most recent newsletters that you talked about deep work versus learning in public. And so is learning in public something that you've been maybe rethinking lately with that newsletter? Or where would you go with that with regards to deep work and learning in public from a personal perspective? Yeah, that's a great question. And thanks for picking up on that in the newsletter. I think the newsletter is definitely my closest thing to like a public journal where I just write what I'm going through every week. And enough people find it useful that, that, I, that I just keep going for now. I never really know when these things end, but I enjoy the journey. It's not about the destination. So the idea, the problem comes when, because learning in public is very tied to feedback. Like the the whole goal is that to establish this vicious or virtuous cycle of a feedback loop, right? You put something out, you get feedback and you improve And Maybe you're wrong, maybe you're right. You just get encouragement or you get an indication of where to improve and you just keep going and going. And the whole idea is that that, that loop is a lot faster than if you did it by yourself. The problem comes when you try to have a feedback loop that is too fast and you're constantly, you're putting out, you're, you're tweeting something and then you're constantly refreshing to see the number of likes that it gets. That's completely pointless. Like there's, there's no point to, to doing any of that. So there's a contrast. So you should try to do some deep work and some amount of that means that you should ignore the, the people uh, around you or the, the people trying to give you feedback. And I think the two of them are not necessarily at odds because you can just have long checks of deep work and then, and then share it and interact with uh, your readers and, and your peers and your mentors, and then go back and <laughs> go back to the deep work cycle all over again. Uh, but deep work is definitely something new to me. Uh, I definitely struggle with it because I, I do multitask a lot. And I think that I've lost some ability to focus for long periods of time. So uh, I'm trying to get back more into the habit of, of deep work and cutting out some of the more noisy parts of learning in public that haven't been so useful to me. So it's definitely a balance. Um, there's definitely ways to do learning public badly. For example, if you pretend, show yourself to be an overnight expert, I'm, I'm definitely always in favor of being more authentic. I like the idea that the way that Andy Matsushak, who's a former React Core team member, but I think now he's like an independent researcher and just general writer and thinker, he calls it working with the garage door up. So you can be working on your stuff in the garage and really deep into it, and you just leave your door up. So you're not really looking at whether people are looking at you or not, but some might, someone might be learning from what you do. And that's a nice analogy. I'm not sure how well it translates because your behavior just changes, right? So when you know people could be looking at you. So I, for example, I used to live stream on Twitch when I was writing, 
And I found that was very distracting because I, I would be trying to narrate what I was doing or I'd be checking the comments to see if anyone was like responding so that I could respond to them in time so they would stick around more. And that's all very secondary to just writing the damn thing. So, so I think there's ways to do deep work and learn in public, right? And you have to think about what mix you want. And so what are your thoughts on creators who feel as though they've become enslaved to their own systems, for example, as it relates to creating content on a schedule and constantly having to draw out creativity from yourself on that, on that system schedule that you create for yourself? Wow. Good question. Is that a fear or is that a, I don't, I don't know. I, f- I feel like, a, so I think people approach this in a few ways. Sometimes they use that as a crutch or sorry, they use that as a mental barrier to prevent them even getting started in the first place. But then also I, I do see that people after a couple of years of, of doing this stuff. And so both are, so on the one, on one side, I'm supposed to tell you, no, it's bullshit. Just do it. Uh, see what happens. And then the, on the other side, I need to be very sympathetic and go like, yeah, burnout is real and you got to take care of yourself and just take a break and come back. And on some <laughs> level, I think that's, uh, that's where I've landed. Uh, I have been studying a lot of creators and it seems like the sustainable human schedule is once a week. And you do that for a hundred times in, in terms of consistency. And you work your way up towards some level of quality where you figure out your voice, your creative pursuits, your, your favorite topics. And after that, whatever, paying your dues, you're welcome to lessen, slack off on the consistency and just work on quality based on your inspiration. So the model I have for this is Wait But Why, which is Randall Monroe's thing, I think. No, Tim Urban, Tim Urban. And he used to, he, he actually did a couple of interviews where he laid out the process he used to get started, which was literally consistently post every single week for two years. And once he got, only once he got to some level of readership, then he let himself come and go as in terms of creative uh, output. So now you'll see entire months where he doesn't post anything. Uh, and that's fine because he's working on stuff. He's gained the trust of readers. People still pay him on his Patreon, even though they, they don't get anything from him. And that's a wonderful place to be in. Uh, a lot of people don't, don't get there though. So you, you are a slave to your, that's not you slave. Uh, you are beholden to your schedule a bit, especially for people who are like in the middle rungs of like just getting going and like making a promise to their subscribers. I s- especially see this from like Substack authors and writing news- newsletters. If you sold a one-year subscription, you have to write for a year. And they're like, uh, what, what if they just have, don't have anything this week? No, suck it up. You, you just got to write it. So, so for those people, I say that just, this is an idea I've been th- weighing in my mind. Try to live your life in high definition. And what I mean by that is that there's a lot of joy in life. There's a lot of interesting stuff in life that we just skip because we're trying to live life fast. Slow down a little bit and notice the, the, the cool, interesting, beautiful things and write about it and talk about it. Like there's a lot of ideas that just come up in casual conversation, a lot of stories that can be told that haven't been told just because you take them for granted. Slow down and go over them again and, and realize that this is interesting to someone and you can tell it because not everyone knows about it. And yeah, I, th- I think it's very reasonable to come up with at least one idea a week. So the challenge I've set for myself currently is I have a mixtape where I come up with a podcast or audio snippet once a day. And if you put that, put yourself through that, which in the finance world, we call idea velocity, like the process or the the discipline to just come up with, hey, this is a story. Hey, this is a cool thing I can write about. To come up with something like that every single day, then once a week is walking the park. Cool. So how important is it to build a brand as a developer? How important is it to build a brand as a developer? That's interesting. A personal Uh, brand, yeah. Yeah. 
it's only important. It's minorly important. It's not. It's not the be all and end all. And nobody likes the the person who's all about building their building up their own brand. But it is minorly important that everyone that matters to you that you want to potentially want to work with knows that you exist and knows who you are and knows what you can do and wants to work with you. There's the few rungs of of the of the brand building, right? First, get them to know that you exist. Second, know get them to know what you do. Third, get them to want to work with you. Once you're there, then you'll have all the opportunities that you ever want in your life, and you can stop building your brand. Because what's the point of being super famous? Everyone would just want to tell you what to do or govern your life in some way. So a lot of people, when they get to a certain level of recognition, just stop because they realize that there there are pitfalls to more reach as well. So I'm not there yet. I will be, and I can see it because I, I have friends who are, who are already way past that, and it's a struggle because. First, you want to get noticed for the stuff that you do, so you do you do want to have some sort of reach, but too much, and then it starts to become a liability. And there, definitely, there's a lot of cases in celebrity culture that uh, have documented that. Cool. Yeah, I'd love to switch up a little bit and talk about your article that you posted on DevTO with regards to the developer's journey as a funnel. Can you explain this for our listeners? Ah,、uh, so this is about the community builder thing.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I work in developer relations for Netlify and AWS, and now I, you know, help to manage developer relations people. And it's very closely tied to marketing, right? Like the whole point that you hire these people is to better communicate to developers than traditional marketers because you are a developer yourself. And the traditional way of viewing these things as a marketing funnel, which is very similar to the marketing process I told you about, there's top of funnel, and one is they haven't heard of you. Second is like. No, one is they don't even know they need you, or or not even aware of their problem. So you got to make them aware of the problem. Second is you got to educate them about like the number of solutions that are available in their space. And third is you got to sell them on why you are the best, something like that, and they should give you money now. <laughs> that's a tra- very traditional marketing and sales funnel, and that I think that's the way that a lot of marketing functions in tech companies are set up, which is fine. There's there's nothing wrong with it. I think there's we're, what we're trying to do is create a more human approach to that. Alternative to that, where you don't necessarily know sometimes, because a lot of times when you do when you structure these things in such a linear fashion, then what you end up doing is making everything very transactional, to the point where when I was going to conferences, I would be asking for everyone's name tags and signing up and asking for their emails and putting them into our CRM so that we can follow up, and all that bullshit. And it was it would made our conversation very strained and artificial. Because I wasn't, I clearly didn't care about them. I just care about making my number go up, and it's very ineffective because the buying cycles are so freaking long in tech. I can hear about a thing, and I would just decide to not. And this is literally what I do for new technology. So I'll hear about new technology. I'll say, all right, cool, all right, roughly get what it's about, and then I sit on it for a year, right, just to see if it sticks around. Because if, if it doesn't stick around, then I, I'm not going to waste my time. But if I'm still hearing about it a year later. Then I'll go try it out. So show me a compensation or evaluation process that <laughs> is evaluated over a year. None, right? Everyone wants wants instant ROI, preferably within the quarter.、It、just doesn't happen. So so I think that there's a lot of effort towards breaking out of this traditional marketing performance marketing role because that's what you do in e-commerce. That's fine. E-commerce, like yeah, you want to sell handbags or a shave or I don't know. That's what you do. That's that's great. Clothes, but if you want to sell. Tech, developer technologies where like they'll be working with you for years, 
it's a much longer cycle and it's more relationship based. And sometimes people can, the word that comes to mind is Orbit because the company that sort of made this, started this movement is called Orbit.love. And so instead of modeling it as a funnel, they call it orbits. Like sometimes people come in closer to your orbit, sometimes they come out. It's no longer a linear thing. It's just more based on where they are in their lives. And, and the only thing you, that you try to do is bring people closer. And, but you don't really beat yourself up if they float away <laughs> for whatever reason. And I think that's a very healthy way to do th- these things. And it also means to me, which I didn't really write about in that blog post, it also means to me that you should have some empathy for how people uh, feel about your competitors as well. Like if your marketing funnel is just about you, then you're serving yourself. And really you should be serving your, cus- your you know, intended target audience or intended user, understanding what they need. And sometimes recommending them to do other things if your your tool is not their best solution, right? You're, you're not trying to f- cram your stuff down people's throats. So I think that's what the, sorry, this is a very long-winded answer to say. I think the funnel is very linear and transactional way of doing things. Very, yeah, finite sum, a very, a very finite game. And the, the cycle or the orbit or whatever we're calling this is the alternative is the opposite we want to play infinite games with on a relationship-based basis and to understand it from the perspective of our customer not from the perspective of the company yeah i love what orbit's doing i'm following rosie we're following each other on twitter and just starting to you know get to know each other through that have you used orbit and what are your thoughts on tools such as these for not only community building but also open source in general yeah, so we use Orbit for Spot Society, just like as in free open source thing. Well, Orbit's good for getting numbers, which that's the thing. Like a lot of developer relations professionals or existential concerns right now is just with justifying their cost to the people that pay the money. So it's a, it's a valuable thing to justify ROI and, and have numbers and track growth over time. And all you want is just charts to go up, uh, up and to the right. That's great. I just wish that there, there was more that it could do. Obviously they're working on this and still pretty early days, but yeah, like instead of just telling me who my highest reach or increased change in, in, in love, developer love, that's what they call it. Just tell me, give me suggestions. Like would this is, are these two developers interested in the same things, but they don't know about each other. Okay, great. Like tell me to make the intro and myself as the community manager, I can go out and make the intro. A lot of that is kind of locked up in a basically manually done by the community manager just holding everyone's interests and profiles in their heads but really you could make suggestions out, out of that i don't know there's a lot of things i'm sure they, they've thought about this way more than i have right now it's, i just look at it as an analytics tool but what i w- would really like for it to become a suggestions or like idea generation tool of like stuff that we could do with our community yeah so what are your thoughts on diversity equity and inclusion de and i in open source in open source wow okay the baseline is that partially people, nobody knows who you are you're, if you're just a username on GitHub. So on that level, if you want, nobody can really discriminate against who you, unless you show who you are. That's a very, that's a very first cut answer. The more realistic sort of socioeconomic <laughs> reason, hesitate to, to, to mention this, is that a lot of people who contribute to open source only do that, do it because they have the time and the resources to be able to do it. So a lot of others don't. Therefore, the, the people who learn faster during, in open source are the ones who are already privileged. Therefore, if you hire and you look at someone with an open source track record and you look at another person with without an open source track record, you may be accidentally biasing against someone who just 
straight up just didn't have the background to do it or didn't have the friends or didn't have whatever. There's an, any number of reasons to, to not get involved in open source and that's completely fine. Uh, we, we need to be aware of that when hiring. But otherwise, that all bunch of caveats, okay? World is very unfair and in some ways open source is also very unfair. But compared to a world in which open source did not exist, and we in tech hired the exact same way as every other industry, including finance, open source creates opportunities that did not exist before, and that should be celebrated. So at Openness, which is a startup that I'm exploring and building right now, yeah, we're exploring how to help open source devs to do more of what they love. And so where do you think open source devs could maybe use a helping hand? Where do open source devs could <laughs> a helping hand? Wow. I have a very small, and I don't know if like that's the this is the biggest answer or not, but it's just the first one that comes to mind because I have a investment in this space. So triaging issues when when you open source something, you take on not just you're not just responsible for the code, you're also now suddenly responsible for every single user who comes in and demands a bit of your time, whether or not it's their fault for holding your, your software wrong, or it's actually something that's an issue in your software that you need to fix. So. I do think that a lot, there's no culture of like a separate triage system, like it's on the, the maintainers to, to figure out the priority level of the thing. And it's just a lot of work. And actually a lot of people just refuse to open source stuff just because they don't want to handle all that stuff. They just want to quietly ship. And it's completely fine. It's just that that means that a lot of stuff does not get open source that, that could have been if only we had a better contribution or triage culture. So one of the things in which I'm personally interested in the front end space is to decrease the cycle, make it a lot uh, less of a burden. And so re uh, replay.io is a company that basically spun off from Firefox, uh, from, from Mozilla. And essentially they're recording apps in the browser so that people can uh, create bug reports very easily and play and, and the developers can play them back to exactly spot what went wrong. So instead of like typing and describing what you did, just send the replay and people can step through the code uh, themselves. And uh, that's a very nice deterministic way to, to fix bugs and, tr and triage and prove that uh, you actually uh, face this bug. So, but in, in larger open source, uh, actually, I've actually named this idea before, which with, with Henry Zhu, who runs Babel. And it's this idea called maintainers.md or like the, the separation of maintainer concerns. Because right now a maintainer is expected to be full stack. They have to handle everything from start to finish, community all the way down to code. And probably we could split that up and probably we could make them limited term because something that's super annoying as well is that there's no end of term. Once you take up a, a responsibility, you're stuck with it until you just vaguely walk away. And there's, it's perceived as a chore rather than an honor. I like it to be an honor. So the model that I think about is actually the social clubs of like our parents' generation where it, they might vote in like a president or a treasurer and they would all have distinct jobs and they would all hold it for a certain term, right? For six months or a year. And you can just go like, yeah, I was president of this club from like 2016 to 17. And here's the next president and the next president. And and it's nice and a nice limited term of responsibility. It's, it's sectioned off. So not like it's not one person that's handling the, the whole thing. And I think we could do that in open source. I haven't really, I haven't really like made any noise about this idea. But I think it's interesting. I think we should try it. That actually plays into the next question quite well, is how <laughs> does governance play into the future of open source and why and how is it uh, growing as a field of interest? I mean, it's, I, I don't know if it's growing. I think it's always been important. I think bad governance certainly can make me choose, not choose a project 
despite you know everything else being great about it ultimately open source ultimately software is an expression of values and if you fundamentally disagree with the values of the people running this the project you will eventually disagree with the the, the code as well because it will just encode your know, the values over time yeah so having welcoming inclusive values is important and i don't know what else to say about that I, I, there's a lot of nuances right like how do you communicate uh, with your users when you release projects, how long are you going to support things and backport security fixes and stuff like that? You're doing all of this. There's 101 things that you would like to promise to people, and then your limit is time and your resources. So, so you have to let some things go, and it's a very difficult conversation because people don't want to let go of their pet topic, right? and and so everyone's making their own trade-offs in various ways. I don't know if we can improve upon that, but that's just the way I see things. Cool. And so what is one of your favorite open source projects right now? Ah, Svelte is my, so one of my favorite open source projects, just because I'm working on the community side of it uh, and I'm friends with the, the creator. And it's just a very interesting in the independent framework that is doing extremely well against uh, much, much larger competition. And I like, I like seeing the underdog perform. And I also love when I read the code, uh, how simple it is. And I think so sometimes we, we get too wrapped up in complexity that we don't see that there's an alternative that is good enough. And I definitely see Svelte in, in that way, pushing back in, against the complexity of some of the software that we've created for ourselves and saying like, yeah, your thing's great, but you may not need it. And yeah, just, I, I love that kind of story. I'd love to ask you a personal question about hawker markets in Singapore, if you don't mind. Sure. Yeah, when I was there, I became, yeah. When I was in Singapore, I became really quickly obsessed with Hawker Marts because obviously food is, the food is amazing. And then the price point is even better. But what, have you tried the Michelin star stalls? And please tell me about it. I've tried it once. There's a very long line, obviously, just because, uh, you know, it's, it's one of the first street food stalls to ever get a Michelin star. But it's like not that different from what you normally get from non-Michelin star restaurants. So this restaurant just randomly got picked by whoever. So I don't really care about some random critic's opinion. They're just all generically like quite good because the, the formula is pretty well known. And uh, I appreciate that. So my, my thesis around this whole thing is that food is the great equalizer in Singaporean society because uh, rich people and poor people eat the same things and they don't pay very much for it. And it's, that's wonderful. Yeah, that was what I loved about it as well is people go for the food and the enjoyment and it brings people together, which is the best part about it. Okay. Thanks for humoring me about that. So what would you recommend to devs that may want to get more involved in open source and what's the best way to start? Start with something that you already use because then you already have a lot of familiarity with that project and you feel a satisfaction when you've made a contribution and you see it in, in, the day-to-day -day use of your, your own work. So, so don't don't do the thing where someone open sources a hot new project that you haven't used and you try to contribute to that. You just won't have empathy and you're not going to stick around anyway. So, so don't even waste your time. Don't waste their time as well. But yeah, start with something that you already use and, and always check with them on your direction first before filing the, the pull request because a lot of people do drive-by pull requests and that actually increases maintainer stress because they now they have to say no to you or massively change your work because they you never checked with them in the first place it's very impolite yeah th there is an etiquette that, that you learn when you first get started that maybe someone should write down and probably people already have but you just have to learn it after a few rounds of doing it and i think you know it doesn't have to be code is, is the other point that i always give people so people always want more documentation and even if you want to code uh, you don't have to contribute to core code you can write tests 
and there's never enough tests and people always want to, to increase more coverage of their code or replicate or reproduce the bugs that people are reporting, just like the triage issue that we talked about earlier. So all of these are contributions that are very valid and you can work your way towards landing a PR in, in, in the core code. But yeah, I, I, I do highly recommend that people uh, get into it. It's possible to overcommit. So be fast to, to just say like, okay, I've, I've bit off more than I can chew. I need to put this down or give this out to someone else. The worst thing is to take up responsibilities. Like I'll be in charge of that. And then to drop the ball because other people are relying on you. So don't do that. And, and just everyone does it. Everyone overcommits. So just recognize when you've done it and just go back and just say like, yeah, I've taken on too much. Do you think there's space in the community of open source for non-developers or yeah, non-technical folks? Yeah, we have we have a couple in in uh, Swell Society core core organizing team, and yeah, they're there for the people. It's a very nice community, and they, they can do project management. Um, they can you know, do event organizing. They can talk about like the marketing and the blog posts and the the YouTube tutorials. There's so much. There's in fact, like the code is the smallest part of what it takes to, to run a, a successful community. So yeah, if you want to do it, that's great. It's just, I think it's very rare because as a developer, like if you're not a developer, what do you really, you don't really use the, 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 the tool that you're supporting in the first place. So why are you there? You, you just, you know, yeah, sure. You, you just genuinely like the people, but you could be doing any number of other things like I don't know, like, like gardening, like astronomy, that's the same level of connection there. Yeah. For myself, it's my brother was an open source developer and yeah so I had that little bit of osmosis about like 20 years ago and then more recently I've been consulting in in, in this space a little bit more anyway we won't go too much into that if you're interviewed here no it's fine I, I like that <laughs> people share their perspectives and yeah, yeah I mean I, I, I don't know what the motivations of other people are I just I just have my own lens of things and I don't really think about spend too much time thinking about how, what other people are motivated by yeah yeah Okay, so where can we find where can we find you online? Sorry, I'm gonna ask that again. Where can we find you online and learn more about what you're learning in public? <laughs> sure. Uh, so I always send people to my site now, Swix.io. It's got all my other links to everything else if you ever need it. And I I do have a weekly newsletter that uh, you can subscribe for more thoughts. I always love to share the best of what I read in other people as well. And yeah, I think if anything, I hope to encourage people to go through the same journey that I did because it's really changed my life. And I, I wish that people would try it out just to see what it can do for them. Well, thank you so much for your time. 